Well, could you find your way back to your seats in the dark? We were hoping that maybe you'd make new friends because you'd accidentally sit down in the wrong seat and, uh, you know, make a new friend while you're sitting there. So, hey, we're glad you're here with us. Uh, my name's Kurt. We're, we're honored to have you here with us. If you're here in person, if you're joining us online, uh, we're glad that you are here. I, I was thinking this week because sometimes, you know, I just think weird things. I was thinking uh, about some famous people and their, their famous, like, last words. Can you ever do that? Or am I, like, the only weirdo in here that, like, looks up what people said before they died? Guess okay. I'm the only one. That's cool. It's fine. I like me. It's okay. Uh, some of the, the more famous, famous last words, uh, Leonardo da Vinci said this, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Da Vinci. I'm like, man, what does my work do for God if that's the case? <laughs> uh, not a very good artist. Marie Antoinette. This one cracked me up because this kind of sounds like something my mom would say or my grandma would say. She's being led to the guillotine to be executed, and she stepped on the foot of one of the executioners, and she says, pardon me, sir, I didn't do that on purpose. Like, you're about to have your head chopped off, and you're worried you stubbed somebody's toe, okay? Like, uh, Groucho Marx, this one cracked me up. Uh, his wife said, are you about to die? And she sa he said, uh, die, my dear? Why, that's the last thing I'll do. Um, Nostradamus, you know, the great... A predictor of things. So one night told his family, tomorrow I shall no longer be here. And that was the last prediction he made, and it was correct. <laughs> we, we see these, and, and it's funny because some of these famous last words, I mean, are actually known. Some of them, we just kind of assume it's like they said it. Maybe it wasn't the actual last thing they said. Uh, one of my history professors in high school always uh, joked about some of the famous sayings we hear, like in American history classes or whatnot. And, uh, he always used the one uh, where, you know, they're on the ship and he yells, I've not yet begun to fight. And he goes, did they just stop in the middle of the battle and write that down to make sure it was recorded properly? Or are we getting like a paraphrased version of it maybe? Well, the Bible actually tells us what Jesus' last words were. Now, now, he tells us a couple times, because the first set of last words for Jesus, he's hanging on the cross, and he says, it is finished, and, and he, he dies. And then he goes in the grave, and he's there for a couple of days, and he comes out, and he's resurrected, and, and he walks the earth for like another six weeks, like 40 days he walks the earth. And then he has another set of last words. In Matthew 28, it gives us the Great Commission. That's one of the last things he tells his disciples. He says to go make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he says one more thing that Luke records in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he looks at the disciples now becoming the apostles and says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is the series that we are going to move forward with the next few weeks. It's just simply called Be My Witnesses. Because what Jesus does right there in that last little bit, Luke, as he, he leads into the book of Acts, makes a very interesting wording when he says that in his previous book, in other words, the Gospel of Luke, he wrote about everything Jesus began to do. And that's such a curious wording because it's saying he started it, but Jesus didn't end it. 
He left it there for us, the church, to carry on and to take. And then Jesus says these words to his apostles that you're going to be my witnesses throughout all these places. And then he ascends into heaven. He just floats on up there with God where he still is today. We're going to take this series over the next four weeks, and we're going to look at this, and, and I'll explain it a bit more here in a moment, but Jesus, when he gives this command, it's kind of an inside-out command. He says, first off, you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem. He's talking about the immediate local context around him, and then he eventually gets all the way out to the ends of the earth, and that's how we're going to approach this series. So today we're going to start by looking where we're at, looking where we're from and where we live. I, uh, I grew up in a town called Miami, Oklahoma. I got a map here to kind of show you where it is. You see the star? It's right there in the corner of the state. In fact, if you were to uh, head out uh, this afternoon and go hop on Highway 69 and go south, two and a half hours later, you'll be in my hometown. It's just straight down the road, right across the state line. As soon as you get into Oklahoma, boom, there we are. We're almost in Oklahoma, almost in Missouri. We're just far enough away from Arkansas, you know, kind of keep that pushed away, but we're right there by the other two states. Um, I, I born and raised there. I, I lived there until I was about 21. I moved away to college. I went to the University of Oklahoma in Norman, Oklahoma, which is kind of in the middle of the state. It's a suburb of Oklahoma City. Uh, I was there for three years going to OU when I graduated. <clears throat> moved back home for a while. Jennifer and I got married. We started our family. Got into ministry. And ministry took us out to the Phoenix, Arizona area, specifically Glendale, Arizona. Glendale's a suburb on the west side of Phoenix. Uh, it's kind of famous for two things. It's the home of Luke Air Force Base, if you know anything about the military, the home of the F-35. So we get to watch these brand new, like super sweet fighter jets just do training runs nonstop all the time. It was pretty cool. And it's also home of the stadium where the Arizona Cardinals play. So it's like going to be the home of the Super Bowl this year. If, you, if the Chiefs make the Super Bowl, that's where uh, they'll play is out in Glendale. It was just a couple miles down the road from our apartment uh, out there. We finished there, had a couple month gap, and we wound up out in Oregon, in Grants Pass, Oregon, where I pastored a church for uh, almost five years. It's in southern Oregon, not too far from the California state line, not too far from the coast, right there on I-5 in the middle of the mountains. Grants Pass, a city of about 40-ish thousand people, so kind of a big town, not really a full-on city. We were out there until last summer we moved here, and uh, we spent a couple weeks uh, crashing the, the water cotties basement in Lenexa before we wound up living in Olathe. I give you that not so you can know everything about my past, because probably like your life is so much better now that you know the five cities I've lived in, right? Like that's not really the purpose of that. It's to say that everywhere I've gone, I've seen a theme, that home is where you make it. Home is what you make it. The town I grew up in, Miami, Oklahoma, it's, it's spelled like Miami. It's pronounced differently. Don't ask me how to explain that. You know, I, I used to say it was two different Indian tribes, one to Oklahoma, one to Florida. But they both came from Ohio. And they pronounce it Miami in Ohio. So somehow in Oklahoma, we changed that. I don't know how or why, but we do that. With a lot of town names are pronounced like you wouldn't expect in Oklahoma. But it's a town of about 12,000 people. It's a, it's a difficult spot. And I joke because we were the big town in our county. I always tease Jennifer. She grew up in Commerce, just outside of Miami. Uh, I always call it one of our suburbs. Because a town of 12,000 people can have suburbs when you're the one that has Walmart. They had to come to ours to go to church and to go to Walmart and to go to McDonald's and basically to function, you know, outside of their, their little uh, small town. 
Their claim is they're the home of Mickey Mantle. So they had that on us. But uh, it's a town of about 12,000. Phoenix, Arizona is a city of 6 million. I, you know, I've lived in both. And, and right here, we're kind of halfway in between with two and a half to three million in the greater KC area. And what I've seen in all of these is home is what you make it. Growing up in Miami, like a lot of small towns, a lot of kids growing up just couldn't wait to get out of there. Can't wait to go see the world. Can't wait to get out of this little podunk town where the best thing to do is go hang out at Sonic and hit on the car hops and get rejected by the car hops. And then later, they went up marrying you anyway. You know, like that's a whole other story I'll get into another time, but uh, that may or may not have happened to me. Um, but that's, you know, growing up in a small town. You can't wait to get out of there. And yet so many people stayed there. The ones who stayed there and decided to stay there like being there. The ones who feel stuck there, well, they feel stuck there. One of my favorite TV shows is Parks and Recreation. Maybe my favorite show of all time is, is Parks and Rec. It, it centers around this character, Leslie Note, played by Amy Poehler. Uh, she's the deputy director of the Parks and Recreation Department in this fictional town of Pawnee, Indiana. And she's surrounded by just this dysfunctional crew. In fact, her, her boss, who runs this government department, is an anti-government libertarian who's just trying to wreck the whole thing. Uh, but... Um, her, the rest of her team is dysfunctional and they're quirky, but she is the most idealistic, positive, you know, go-getter out there. And, and she is convinced that Pawnee is the greatest city in the world, despite the fact it's portrayed as like the worst city in the country. They have this overwhelmingly unhealthy, and, and like they're, they're consistently in the top five for the, the most unhealthy and obese cities in, on the planet. They have uh, crazy people who live there. They have a massive infestation of raccoons that tears everything up. But to Leslie, it's the greatest city on the world because she's invested there. She loves it. And she gives us a good blueprint for how to love and invest the city where we live. Because wherever it is that we live, whether it's in Shawnee or down in Olathe or Overland Park or maybe it's Bonner Springs or, or maybe it's Baser or maybe it's somewhere in between all of that, home is what you make it. Community is what you make it to be. Community is, is defined this way. It's a group of people with a common characteristic or interest living together within a larger society. Communities, we have our towns we live in. We have the church that we belong to. We have the places that we work or the schools our kids go to. That's kind of how community is for us. If you're, if you're a parent my age, sometimes your community is the activities your kids do. Like it, that, that's the parents you're with and around all the time. And, and the question is, where does the church fit into all of that? What should the church do with all this? Well, Crossroads, kind of since the beginning, the mission here, which is on your, your bulletins, it's on your note sheet, is that we exist to bring people to Jesus Christ and to assist them in becoming his fully devoted and reproducing followers. Put more simply, our job as a church is to lead people to Jesus and make disciples. And churches do this. We take the Great Commission and we make this catchy mission statement out of it. And, you know, we want it to be memorable and we want it to stick. But Jesus has really simplified it down even easier to follow than that. Jesus just simply said to love others and make disciples. That's the missions that Jesus gave us kind of summed up. Love others 
and make disciples. Again, in this series, we're going to go inside out. We're starting with Jerusalem today, with our Jerusalem, with what's right around us, our community, our neighborhoods, our immediate context, the people that we see on a regular basis. Next week, we're going to talk about those difficult people that are in our lives that we're called to love and to minister to. We're going to go on out to our, our, our nation and then eventually to the ends of the earth throughout the course of the series. And we're going to ask the question, as a church, what is our role in these? How do we do what we're supposed to do? Because here's kind of the way that I look at this. you got a diagram there in, in, in your, your note sheet. Is that as a church, we're called to be with Jesus in community on mission. And I don't think you can take one of those three points away from there. If you take away the in community, we're a church on mission. Okay, well then, who are we ministering to? Each other? Ourselves? Well, like, where are we going with it? If you take away the on mission part, we're a church with Jesus in community. Okay, what are we doing with it? We're in community, great, but now what? Like, we've got to have some kind of a plan, some sort of a goal with all of this. And if you take away the with Jesus part, you get a nice charity organization. We do good things for people, but there's no Christ in it. We're in community. We're on mission. We've got to have all three points of that triangle. With Jesus, in community, on mission. To me, that is the purpose of the local church. And that should always be a focus of where we as a church are are trying to move outward, is that we're keeping those three thoughts together, those three thoughts in mind. That's the whole purpose and aim and goal of what we do. Today, let's make that very simple, because I know it's the million-dollar question that I've heard is, well, how do we do that? What's the picture-perfect way? And and I'm going to just tell you, I don't know that I have the perfect answer to that, because it's going to look a little bit different for each church, depending on the culture of the people in the church and the culture around the church of the community. But I heard somebody say this one time, and it really stuck with me. If you want to try to reach your community and reach your neighbors, you have to ask yourself two simple questions. The first one is, how do we love them? And the second is, how can we serve them? How can we love them, and how can we serve them? That's where we start. Jesus gave us kind of an example of this. He gave us many examples of this, and and I just picked one, but you can can find any number of, of instances of Jesus doing this throughout the Gospels. But in Mark chapter 10, we read a story of Jesus encountering a man by the name of Bartimaeus. Perhaps you've heard of it. If not, I'll read it to you. It's going to be on the screens here. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 46, says, Then they reached Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples left town, a large crowd followed him. A blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the road. When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus, the son of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, was nearby, he began to shout, "Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me!" Be quiet! Many of the people yelled at him, but he only shouted louder, "Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me!" When Jesus heard him, he stopped, and he said, "Tell him to come here." So they called to the blind man, cheer up, they said, come on, he's calling you. Bartimaeus threw aside his coat, he jumped up, and he came to Jesus. And then Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? We saw this a few weeks ago. Jesus asking the same question to the crippled beggar by the side of the pool. What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said, my rabbi, I want to see. Jesus said to him, go, for your faith has healed you. Instantly the man could see, and he followed Jesus down the road. Now, we just got out of this series the last several weeks uh, called Ripple Effect, and we looked in the Gospel of John at the seven miracles, the seven signs that Jesus performs, and we kind of see some repeats just right here. 
A blind man was healed, that was one. And he asked the crippled beggar, what do you want me to do for you? And Jesus does both with Bartimaeus. And this is a different story, it's a different instance, it's not the same one that we read about in John. I don't want to focus on the miracle side of this. Okay, that's what we just did. It's easy to focus because it was a great moment that happened. What I want to focus on instead is the attitude Jesus had when he approached this man. Jesus, just for some context here, is at the peak of his fame. It says the crowd was, was large that followed him. It's probably thousands of people following him. Uh, Jesus is, is an important person and therefore has important things to do. And that's what they tell Bartimaeus. Leave him alone. He's busy. You ever say that to somebody? I say that to my kids all the time when they're trying to bother the rest of the staff. Leave them alone. <laughs> they're trying to work. We're trying to get things done. That's just a natural instinct that we, we say a lot of times, right? Hey, so-and-so is busy. Don't bother them. Or maybe we have that attitude... Somebody will call me all the time, hey, Kurt, I hate to bother you. I'm like, you realize you're my job, right? Like, this is what I do. <laughs> I work with you all. I, I, I'm here to try to help you all. I welcome that interruption. People will say that. But Jesus, in this moment, was not too busy. Why? Because of the heart that Jesus had. He understood what this community was all about and what this community needed. See, I'm convinced of this. At the heart of community is compassion. That's what Jesus had, and that's what Jesus showed, not just to Bartimaeus, but page after page through the Gospels, we see compassion being played. I, I'm convinced that you can't fully experience community until you truly understand compassion. Uh, there's a really fun word that's used, that's, I believe, there in your note sheet that describes compassion throughout the Gospels. It's this word here. Anybody want to take a stab how to pronounce that? It's the word splagnizomai. Okay, now it's your turn. Ready? Let's say it with me. Ready? Splagnizomai. I expect you guys to have that aced by next Sunday, okay? When Brad's preaching next Sunday, I just want somebody to shout out, splagnizomai! Just see what he does. It'll be fun, okay? I love this word for two reasons. One, because it sounds like you're sneezing when you say it. But number two, because the definition of splachnitzomai, it's a feeling in the pit of your stomach that hurts for someone else. That's splachnitzomai. That's how the Gospels define compassion. Maybe you've had that. Uh, I've had times where I've come across a situation where I probably should have done something, and I didn't. And I got home later, and I just thought, man... I don't know how much I could have helped or if I could have helped, but man, I should have done something. And I don't know that it's guilt. I don't know that it's that. It's just that feeling where I'm like, I'm not even hungry. My stomach kind of hurts, you know? Like I just, man, I, I messed up by not doing anything. I, I think that is the closest I can come to understanding splagnitzomai and that feeling in the pit of my stomach. Because when Jesus approached Bartimaeus, that's exactly what he had when he saw his situation. Bartimaeus was a blind beggar. That meant he was an outcast in this society. He was pushed out to the fringes. Hey, leave somebody important like Jesus alone because you don't get the chance to talk to him. You don't, you don't belong. We say this sometimes, right? We, we feel this sometimes, right? We have nobodies in our society. And here's why I think Jesus had that pit, uh, that, that feeling in the pit of his stomach. Nobody is a nobody in the eyes of God. Nobody is an outcast to God. And I think that's true because that's who Jesus was drawn to, especially in the Gospel of Luke. 
He focuses on Jesus going to those people that the Jewish men put, put as lesser. The women, the children, the, 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 the lame, the, the blind, the, the lepers, all of those people who, who were lesser in the eyes of the Jewish man. Jesus was drawn to them. And he loved them and he helped them and he wanted to change their lives. And unfortunately, in our society today, we have too many people that might either call themselves or be called by other people as nobodies. And folks, here's the reality that we cannot ignore anymore. We have the, too many nobodies in the church. I'm not trying to insult you by calling you one. I'm saying as a church, too often we start looking at ourselves too much. We start looking at, at what we want to do and accomplish too much that we start ignoring the people who are here crying for help saying, I just wish Jesus would have mercy on me. Let me let you in on a little secret here. It's not a secret, but just a fear that I have. As a pastor, my greatest fear in this calling and in this job that I do, it's not that I preach a bad sermon. Those are going to happen. It's not that some of you eventually dislike me. That's probably going to happen. I can't please everybody. It's not that I'm going to make a decision and you're going to hate it. I can pretty much guarantee you that's probably going to happen at some point. My greatest fear as a pastor, as a leader of a church is, that if we closed our doors this afternoon, that tomorrow nobody would notice. That if we shut down and we said, okay, 12 o'clock today, Sunday, October 30th, Crossroads Christian Church no longer exists, that tomorrow, October 31st, people would drive by and go, I wonder what that building used to be. That nobody would notice. Because we haven't done what we need to do. Now, that's not the case here. Yesterday, we had an incredible event. We had so many people here from the community. And we have those opportunities, and we can always do more. But let me just tell you, I've been a part of churches where somebody said, hey, what church are you at? And I'll tell them, they're like, well, I've never heard of that. In a small town where everybody knows everybody. Or they might say, oh, are you that building out there on the edge of town? And I couldn't honestly answer that question. If we closed our doors today, would nobody in town notice? Because I knew the answer. I didn't want to answer it. That's a gut punch. And for me, that, that's something that I always want to make sure. Not to say that we're famous. Not to say that people know who I am or, or know who Brad is or, or, or that... that nothing like that. I just want us to make sure we're investing in the lives of the community around us. So much so that if something happened to us, there would be a gap that another church needs to come in and fill. Are we doing that? See, I believe this as followers of Jesus, our compassion should draw us into our community. And then being drawn into community should in turn breed more compassion in our hearts and in our, our souls for people. Because I think that's the catalyst for, for becoming a church that really loves its community around it. Uh, Coretta Scott King is the, the widow of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. She said, the greatness of a community is most accurately measured by the compassionate actions of its members. Yet here's the problem. Too many, too many members of too many societies today don't feel like they belong. And maybe this is you, you're, you're here and you're here on a regular basis, or maybe you're online and you know that we as a church exist and you're somewhere in this area, and you're just a person who is just crying out, can anybody see me? Can anybody hear me? Does anybody care about me? And you're wondering where Jesus and the church fits into all of this, or maybe you're here on a regular basis at the church wondering how can we make sure people know that we hear them and see them and care about them and love them. 
Maybe you're on one of those two extremes here. See, I think too often, too many of us just fall into our own echo chambers. And social media has created something that at the same time is amazing and it's awful. Because social media is great. I, I, I always joke, I kind of give you my age a little bit. I was one of the first people on Facebook because when it started in 2004, it was on college campuses and I was a senior. And OU was one of the first schools that got it. And you had to have a college email address to get it. So we used social media, which at the time we called social networking, exactly how most college people were, to try to pick up girls. It was as successful as my trips to Sonic were. I mean, you know, so just to kind of <laughs> let you know. But, but it's grown into what it is today. And, and in many ways, it's great. We lived in Oregon, and we had our kids. In fact, I mean, the girls were born when we moved out there. Titus was born when we lived in Oregon. But our family and our friends back in Oklahoma felt like they knew them without getting to see them on a regular basis. It's great for that. But it's also pushing us into isolation. It's pushing us into this echo chamber where we yell and we say what we want to say and say what we want to hear and nobody actually may hear it. We may just hear it ourselves. But that's what it's kind of done for us. And it's actually kind of led to this spot where it's led to addiction. You ever realize this? Like when we post on Facebook and you post a picture and you get likes, we've actually studied this now. Endorphins kick in when you get likes on pictures and posts that you like. Those endorphins are those good feelings. Those like miniature highs you get from, you know, doing physical activity or just doing something that brings joy to your life. And the problem with endorphins is that when we don't get those likes, it's a letdown. And you might say, well, why didn't anybody like my picture? Why didn't anybody like my post? Why didn't anybody like what I said? I joked with Jennifer the other night because Brad and I gave our, our appreciation devos back to back. And I said, I'm not trying to say that they like Brad more than me, but his got like 60 likes and mine got four. <laughs> Thank you all for giving me a good sermon illustration today about <laughs> isolation and unhappiness and hurt. <laughs> but the reality is sometimes that's how we really feel because we, we get addicted to that high feeling and we can't fill that. And maybe it's a different kind of addiction, but you know what it does. Addiction leads to isolation, and isolation leads to emptiness, and emptiness eventually leads to hurt. And man, I've heard this said, and I've said it myself, hurt people hurt people. Too often when we're hurt and somebody tries to help, we hurt them in the process. When I was learning to drive, or maybe I was even a younger teenager, we passed a a dog or a cat, something my dad and I that had been hit on the side of the road. And I said, we should go help that. He goes, no, don't go help that animal. He goes, it's going to die. And if you try to help it, all it's going to do is tear you up because it thinks you're there to hurt it more. And like, man, we do the same thing sometimes, right? Like our defense mechanism kicks in, our survival instinct kicks in when we're hurt and we hurt other people in our pain because we don't know any different. We don't mean to, but we just do this. And I think at times we realize all of us are hurting at times. All of us can feel alone at times. All of us can feel isolated and empty and broken at times. And as a church, we have to ask the question, what do we do about it? Well, folks, here's the thing. The answer is actually very, very simple. Jesus told it to us, and if you grew up in church, you probably learned this command from Jesus before you learned anything else. Call it the golden rule. What's he say in Matthew 7? Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. 
Maybe you're like me. I don't know that I was taught this, but I just, in my head as a kid, I remember this in more of the negative. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Don't go punch somebody in the face unless you want them to punch you in the face. Don't lie to somebody unless you want them to lie to you. Don't steal unless you want them to steal to you. It's not negative, though. This is positive, and it's action-oriented. No, do to others what you want them to do to you. Another way to look at this is to kind of flip it around a little bit and ask yourself this question. If I was the other person, what would I want them to do to me or for me or with me? You kind of flip this around. You're no doubt familiar with what an echo is when you come into a large room. I can always hear it here while I'm preaching. I can hear the, 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 the sound bounce off the back wall and come back to me a split second later. I did a wedding a couple of weeks ago at an outdoor venue and there was about a half second delay from the mic to there. And it took me a minute to get used to it when the bride and groom read their vows to each other. He started talking and he stopped because he, like, he heard his voice. You hear the echo, right? You hear it coming back to you later. But the echo effect is this kind of societal practice that has nothing to do with sound. It's that we repeat what we see. Several years ago, at a Chuck E. Cheese in Chicago, uh, two dads got into a shoving match because their kids both wanted the last toy that their tickets were going to buy. And that shoving match escalated into a fist fight, and that escalated into a full-on brawl all through the Chuck E. Cheese. Now, before you judge these people, I have been in some highly competitive skee-ball matches. I kind of get this one, Okay. Uh, my wife and I have shoved each other out of the way at a skee-ball table so the other one wouldn't win. Don't judge me, okay? Not perfect. On the flip side of this, a few years ago at a Chick-fil-A in San Antonio, uh, this car pulls through the drive-thru and says, I want to pay for the car behind me. And they drive off. The second car pulled up and said, oh, they got your meal. I said, oh, well, then I'll pay for the car behind me. And they drive off. The third car pulls up. Same thing. The fourth car, the fifth car, the sixth car. 228 cars came through the drive-thru, which is Chick-fil-A, so it probably took like five minutes. Like, they get through there and nothing flat. 228 cars. My first thought was, how would you like to be the 229th and then hear about that later? Like, really? <laughs> and my other thought was, how many people circled back through? You know, like, give me five 30-count nuggets this time, and... We repeat what we see. We do what we see other people do. Again, Matthew chapter 7, do to others what you want them to do to you. Here's kind of a simple rule of thumb that I think we as a church would be wise to put into practice here. Ask yourself, what do I want that person to do to me or to do for me? When you have an answer, Grab the initiative and do that for them instead. Take the initiative. Take what you want done to you and for you and do it for somebody else. I think even as simple as this command from Jesus is, John gave us an even simpler one in 1 John chapter 3. When he said, let's not merely say that we love each other, let's show the truth by our actions. How do we do this? I think it's simple. We do this by making people our priority. We make our community, as a church, we make that our priority. Because you see, here's kind of the thing. There are two types of people in this world. Anytime there's a crowd that gathers and people get together, there's two types of people. There's one who will come up and say, here I am. 
Look at me, here I am. My uncle and I used to have this back and forth where when we'd get ready to leave, he would always say, I'm glad you got to see me today. And that's kind of become a joke in our family now. Well, hey, I am, I am glad you all got blessed with my presence today. I know your lives are richer because of it today. We say that as a joke, but let's be honest, there are some of us that really believe that. Here I am. That's one type of person. And there's another type of person who walks in and goes, there you are. There you are. I've been waiting to talk to you. I just want to know how you're doing. I just hope things are going well for you. I look around this church and I see so many examples of there you are. Yesterday, we put on the trunk or treat. You saw some pictures of it flashing through. And, and I just want to say to our outreach team and you guys, thank you for the work you put into that. But it was beyond just our outreach team that put that on. And I won't embarrass their leader by calling her out and saying thank you to her, but um, she's getting pointed at back behind the sound booth. Don't look. I don't want to embarrass her. But Brenda, thank you. Your team, thank you. Yeah. And it's not just the outreach team. Just a quick show of hands. How many of you are in here today had a role in some way, shape, or form in Trunk or Treat yesterday? You can see. Yeah, thank you. We had people here during the week packing the, the baggies for the s'mores and, and setting up outside. And really even it kind of spills over to Phil and the youth team because they had a, an outdoor uh, event Wednesday night and, and left some of the stuff up for us. And we had people donate the hay bales and donate the candy. And, and, and we had several of you do trunks for here and several of you man the fire pit. And to my knowledge, nobody lit themselves on fire this year. So that's a good thing. Um, we had some of you just mill around and greet people. And say hi to people. And I was talking with, uh, with Russ Coca, who's on the outreach team and was here before the 8 o'clock. And he goes, I saw a couple of costumes. And I was like, whew, not too sure about that. I was like, but they were here. They were here. They could have been somewhere else, but they were here. And, and I, I, I told him, I said, I love the fact that I didn't recognize hardly anybody. You know what that means? It means we're bringing people here. And that maybe, just maybe, through what you did at your trunk, or through what you did helping people with s'mores, or through what you did manning the bounce house, maybe, just maybe, we showed somebody the love of Christ. And, and we always do this little uh, huddle prayer meeting before service every, every Sunday morning. We sit over here in this, this classroom as a staff. And one of us prays every week, we kind of rotate, but Brad prayed this morning and he said, Father, we just ask that if somebody's heart was touched, we know how to follow up. It's that simple. Because yesterday there were probably hundreds of people here who were the ones that were just waiting for us to say, there you are. We're glad you're here today. We're glad that you're here. We would have done this entire thing just for you. We're glad that you're here. We, we'd go beyond just... Our, our outreach team and some of our ministry teams, small groups, you can serve in your communities, you can serve in the schools around you, the neighborhoods around you. You can love the people you work with, even if they're difficult. You can share the gospel with them. We can go get involved in our kids' schools or our kids' sports teams. That's how we can show compassion because we never know what the person across from us is dealing with. We never know what's on their heart or their soul. Go back to the story of Bartimaeus. He calls for Jesus like so many of us do so many times a day. And Jesus answers him. And I love 
the response Jesus gives him, I already mentioned it once, but he asks him, what do you want me to do for you? It's the same question Jesus asked the crippled beggar, and I think he asked this not because he's being snarky. That's how I probably would, like, oh, well, what do you want me to do for you? I couldn't possibly guess, blind man, what you want me to do for you. No, he asked him, I think, for two reasons. One, he wants us to verbalize it. He wants us to tell him. And two, because he knows he has that feeling in the pit of his stomach that he wants to do something about it. And church, we can do the same. We can change the lives and the situations of the people around us. We are not Jesus. We can't speak healing into somebody's life. I've, I've never done that. I've never spoken healing into somebody's life. I've never made the blind see or the, the lame walk. But we can be his hands and feet. How? Well, a simple start. We can be with him in community on mission. We can start right where we are. Start with our neighborhoods. Start with our schools. Start with our small groups here. We've got diversity in, in, in so many areas in this church. We've got so many things that make us different but it's the blood of Christ that brings us together and molds us together and allows us to be his church. So here's kind of a takeaway thought for you today. I want you to ask yourself this question. What is one thing that you can do this week to make the life of somebody around you better? What's one thing? What is one thing you can do this week to make the life of somebody around you better? Maybe it's as simple as... Just having a conversation with your neighbor that you typically try to avoid. Maybe it is, we're going to the holiday season. I mean, according to some people, Christmas starts in two days. Okay, I'm not one of them, but according to some people, it starts in two days. We forget Thanksgiving exists, but whatever, no can't home. Holiday season, you can take cookies to somebody. Maybe invite them over for Thanksgiving. They don't have anywhere to go, just have them come to your house. We're going to have so many opportunities in the coming two months to bless people. Halloween tomorrow night. Man, maybe you don't normally do trick-or-treaters. Turn your light on. Grab a few things of candy. I ran out of candy one year. I gave kids potatoes. They didn't like it, but that's all I had in the house. <laughs> Give them something. And my wife was at work. I was there by myself. Like, I don't know what to do. I, I, I'm new to this game, okay? First year of marriage. It's always a fun, fun roller coaster. <laughs> their parents appreciated it so we have plenty of chances to make the lives of somebody better maybe, maybe you have a regular person maybe you go to a coffee shop and you've got a regular barista or you go to the store and have a regular cashier maybe just one day say hey how are you doing today just take an extra pause an extra beat just show them the love of Jesus by showing them a few extra seconds, have a little bit of, of, of compassion in your heart and soul. Because you don't know what's led them to the point that they're in right then and there. But God knows. God knows. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for Jesus, for the example that he gives us, not just with Bartimaeus, but with so many other moments and times in the Gospels. And God, I pray we could just get a tiny piece of that compassion. God, we, we can never have all of his, because he's the source of it, but just a tiny piece of it, that this week we can share with somebody in our lives, somebody that may be difficult, somebody that may seem far away, or maybe somebody that we see face-to-face -face every day. 
Because God is that tiny piece of compassion where we start to show somebody how much you love them and how much they matter to you and let them know that nobody is a nobody in your eyes. God, if anybody today is feeling that, if they're screaming out, can you hear me or see me or do you care? God, let us have eyes to see and ears to hear so that we can love them like you do. And we can show them your love. We can lead them into a deeper and more transforming relationship with you. God, we're so grateful for you. And I pray as a church, Lord, we would always, always be focused outside of our doors, outside of our walls, outside of our own comforts, into the people that you have called us to go reach. We're grateful for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. I... uh, I'm going through Ephesians in my small group. Some of you are a part of that. And this past week, we went through the last half of Ephesians 2. and I felt like in a lot of ways, it kind of flows into what we're talking about in the series. Because in the first half of Ephesians 2, we read about how the power of the blood of Jesus reconciles us to God. And we have that great verse in there about we're saved by grace through faith. But the last half of Ephesians 2, it's how the power of the blood of Jesus reconciles us to each other. And like I said, there are so many things that we can, we can focus on and fixate on that separate us. But through the blood of Jesus, we have one singular focus, and that's on our Father. And that it's through that blood we're able to call him Father. When Jesus went to the cross, it wasn't just to forgive our sins. It did, and I'm grateful that it did. But it was to bring us into one, into his church. A theme through that book of Ephesians is, in Christ. In him, we're one. In him, we're forgiven. Communion for me is a time each week to kind of reset my heart and my soul to God. To, to, not to say this is the only time we can ask for forgiveness, but it's a, a chance for us just to kind of come to him with a clean heart. Remembering that it's his blood, it's, we symbolize this little cup of juice that washes our sins away, and it's his broken body that symbolizes this little piece of bread that was broken and given up for us. So as we take this this morning, if you didn't grab a cup, these black tables on all three sides have have a communion cup, you can grab it. It's in this time that we reflect on him and we remember that sacrifice he made for us and the promise, as we sang earlier, that one of these days, whether he returns or calls us home, that we will be with him. God, we're so grateful for Jesus, for his sacrifice that he made on the cross so that we could be with you. God, I ask in this moment we would reflect on you. We would spend this time with you. We would bless you and honor you. In Jesus' name.